Well, it is time, and welcome back. With all that's going on in the world, I thought I would have a prelude this week and listen to a rather lovely rendition of the Ukrainian national anthem. Tedakoto Tefano, O Aotearoa Unitarians. Tedakoto na manahiri, no mai, harmai. Kitele hui topa ate atua, tedakoto tenatato katoa. Welcome to you all to our virtual service. In light of the violence to remove protesters from Parliament's law and Russia's unprovoked invasion of the Ukraine, I am calling on you this morning to join the long line of peace poets, which could begin with the Sumerian princess Ehudawana's lament against war with Sappho's erotic lyrics, or with Archilochus's anti-heroic epigrams. This exercise isn't merely one of sweetness and light. Peace is no cloud-bound dream, but a dynamic of of living amid conflict, oppression, and hatred. Without without either resigning ourselves to violence uh, or giving into our own internal violent response. Peace poems vividly and demonstrably articulate embody such a way. Virginia Satir once called upon her upon fellow poet. Denise Levertov and others to quote, present to the world images of peace, not only of war. Everyone needed to be able to imagine peace if we were going to achieve it, end quote. In a response, poetry and peace, Levertov argues that quote, peace as a positive condition of society not merely an interim between wars, is something so unknown that it casts no images on the mind's screen. But she does proceed further. If a poetry of peace is ever to be written, there must first be this stage we are just entering, the poetry of preparation for peace, a poetry of protest, of lament, of praise for the living earth, a poetry that demands justice, renounces violence, reverses mystery. And now, if you have a chalice or a candle, it's time to light it. If ever there were a time for a candle in the darkness, this would be it. Using a spark of hope, kindle the flame of love, ignite the light of peace, 
and feed the flame of justice. I don't see other hands, so I'll, I'll offer a joy. Because of my duties to Angela, I received a letter from a, a UU in Poland where the church is quite small, but she was asking for some help and, uh, but she was also sharing the fact that even though nearly a million refugees from the Ukraine have entered Poland, no refugee camps have been set up. And there's only one reason. The Polish people have taken them into their homes. I find that just phenomenal. Uh, and something one can only dream of would happen more happen, would happen more frequently in the world, but uh, it, it gave me a little tingle when I read that. Actually, a big one. Uh, but, so I share that. My reading this morning is an adaptation of a Buddhist story. There once lived a king who announced a prize for the artist who would paint the best painting depicting peace. Many great painters sent the king several of their best pieces. One of the paintings among the various masterpieces was of a calm lake, perfectly mirroring peacefully towering snow-capped mountains. Overheard Overhead was a blue, clear sky with fluffy clouds. The picture was perfect. Most of the people who viewed the pictures of peace from various artists thought it was the best among all. But when the king announced the winner, everyone was shocked. The picture which won the prize had mountains too but it was rugged and bare. The sky looked very angry. There was lightning. They did not look, this did not look peaceful at all. It looked like the artist had mistakenly submitted his painting depicting a storm rather than peace. But if anyone looked closely at the painting, he could see a tiny bush growing in a crack in the rocks. In the bush, a mother bird had built her nest. In the midst of the rush of angry weather, the bird sat on her nest with peace. Peace does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise or trouble. Peace means to be in the midst of all the chaos and still be calm in the heart. The real peace is the state of mind, not the state of the surroundings. The mother bird's calm, despite her chaotic surroundings, indeed was the best representation for peace. In my musings this week, I found myself 
and a conundrum. I love saying that word, conundrum. One of the chief reasons amongst many that drew me to live in Aotearoa, New Zealand, was its long history of nonviolence, beginning with the Moriori of the Chatham Islands. They once were warriors, but chose to become warriors for peace. They paid a high price when more violent and aggressive Mari invaded the islands. Gandhi considered them greater geniuses than Isaac Newton. Then there is the moving story of Parihaka, Tefini o Rano Mai and Tohu Kakahi preached a gospel of nonviolent resistance to European settlement on confiscated Mari land. And more than 2,000 followers came to live in their community at Parihaka. They passively resisted the surveying of their land for European settlement by plowing it. On the 5th of November, 1881, about 1,600 volunteers and constabulary field force troops marched on Parihaka. Several thousand Maori sat quietly on the marae as singing children greeted the force with songs. Conscientious objectors to war or military training have a proud New Zealand history. They endured ridicule, imprisonment, loss of civil rights, and in the case of Archibald Baxter, torture. One of our former associate ministers, James Chapel, and congregate Nor- Norman Murray Bell were both imprisoned. Our congregation's historian, Whitefacer, has just published a book about Bell, Prophets at the Gate. However, it was the nuclear free movement and the blockade of U.S. warships that some of you participated in that first made me aware of Aotearoa's anti-war stance and commitment to passive nonviolent resistance. Legislation in 1987 made New Zealand officially anti-nuclear, the only such country in the developed world. As someone who applied for conscientious objector status during the Vietnam War, it was clear to me that my values and New Zealand's are aligned. So why am I faced with a conundrum? Whatever my carefully constructed rational arguments for passive nonviolent resistance may be, my gut wants to tell my head to shut up and level the Kremlin while NATO invades the Ukraine to push the Russians out by any means necessary short of violating the Geneva Convention by using nukes. Putin has triggered all my disgust at bullies, anti-Semites, power-hungry megalomaniacs, and corrupt politicians who exploit the vulnerable. His unprovoked invasion of the Ukraine has ignited anger around the globe 
and frustration at feeling powerless to protect Ukrainians short of going to war. Then there is a the fear that if he defeats Ukraine, that is just the beginning. Even if we resist going to war now, he seems determined to force us into the trenches later as he dreams longingly of reclaiming former Soviet bloc countries. In my desire to tell my gut to chill a little, I want to better understand what precipitated the present horror. An in-depth look would take considerably more time than I have this morning, but here is a brief synopsis. That Ukraine is at the center of the storm should not be a surprise at all. Over the past quarter century, nearly all major efforts at establishing a durable post-Cold War order on the Eurasian continent have foundered on the shoals of Ukraine. For it is in Ukraine that the disconnect between triumphalist end-of-history delusions and the ongoing realities of great power competition can be seen in the starkest form. For half a millennium, Russian foreign policy has been characterized by soaring ambitions that have exceeded the country's capabilities. Beginning with the reign of Ivan the Terrible in the 16th century, Russia managed to expand at an average rate of 50 square miles per day for hundreds of years. History records fleeting moments of remarkable Russian ascendancy. However, Russia has almost always been a relatively weak great power. It lost the Crimean War of 1853-56. It lost the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05. It lost World War I, a defeat that caused the collapse of the imperial regime. And it cost, lost the Cold War, a defeat that helped cause the collapse of the imperial regime's Soviet successor. Over the past decade, Russian President Vladimir Putin has returned to the expansionist trend of relying on the state to close the gulf between Russia and the more powerful West. With the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, Moscow lost some 2 million square miles of sovereign territory more than the equivalent of the entire European Union. Russians have always had an abiding sense of living in a providential country with a special mission. Most countries do. The sense of having a special mission has contributed to Russia's paucity of former alliances and its reluctance to join international bodies except as an exceptional or dominant member. It furnishes Russia's people and leaders with pride, but it also fuels resentment towards the West for supposedly underappreciating Russia's uniqueness 
and importance. To most Western policymakers, Ukraine has represented a brave young country, one that, despite the burden of history, successfully launched itself on a path of democratic development as part of a new world order after the fall of the Berlin Wall. To the Kremlin, meanwhile, it has remained an indispensable part of a long-standing sphere of Russian influence, one that operates largely according to old rules of power. The West can verbally chastise Russian aggression all it likes, but Putin and his ilk simply don't care. They need to maintain a strong state and fulfill its mission. The need to maintain a strong state and, uh, and fulfill its mission trumps limp liberal democratic values. If Russia is going to change, it must be driven internally. Although the West seeks an end to Putinism, this will occur only when the Russian people decide the time has come. This will not happen anytime soon, if ever. For obvious reasons, the West does not want to go to war. War is bad enough. Its unintended consequences are worse. For violence begets violence. No one wins. As an alternative, they have embarked on a strategy of containment through economic sanctions. It worked to bring down the Berlin Wall. It only took 40 years to do so. In the meantime, one million Ukrainian refugees have poured into Poland. Untold numbers of Russian soldiers and Ukrainian resistance fighters have already died, as well as non-combatants. Putin is in control of the world's largest nuclear plant, and cities have been reduced to rubble. Are the Ukrainian people expected to wait 40 years for protection? Might war become the worst, best alternative for their sakes? Could it become the only realistic means of containing Putin's dream of expansion? If so, can it be a just war? Ever since St. Augustine raised the question in his City on a Hill, theologians and philosophers have argued the question of what just is a just war? They eventually came to the conclusion that a just war is possible if all if six requirements are met, and it has to be all six. I might explore them in the future when I have more time. For now, let's note that scholars have yet to find an example of a just war. Clearly, there is no easy answer to how to respond to the Ukrainian tragedy. Certainly, there is no timely response available. This is usually the case, which explains why, unlike the Society of Friends, Brethren, Mennonites, and the Seventh-day Adventists, Unitarian Universalists have never been a, quote, peace church, unquote, 
True, some Unitarian Universalists take personal and principled stands against all use of military force, even in response to aggression and terror. There's a long tradition of such witness among us. The Reverend Adam Ballou, a 19th century Universalist minister who served the Unitarian congregation in Hopedale, Massachusetts, wrote a notable treatise, Christian Non-Resistance, that influenced Tolstoy, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King, Jr. It is also true that many UUs, while deeply committed to peace and justice, have been willing to take up arms, though reluctantly, on behalf of justice and in defense of principle. After the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850, the Unitarian minister and abolitionist Theodore Parker kept a pistol on his desk to protect the escaped slaves using his church as a stop on the Underground Railroad. He supported the radical abolitionist John Brown, who was anything but a pacifist. I find it particularly ironic that over three decades, three consecutive U.S. Secretaries of Defense were staunch Unitarians. UUs have sometimes been called pragmatic pacifists. John Buren, former president of the UUA, once described us this way, we are not a peace church. We are not a war church. We are a religious community of both pacifists and pragmatists taking different spiritual paths toward a common goal, a world of greater justice and peace. To be such a healing presence is for me not a conundrum after all. It is my purpose and my dream. My closing words this morning are by Eric Williams. The world is too beautiful to be praised by only one voice. May you have the courage to sing your part. The world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands. May you have the courage to use your gifts. May you go in peace. And now it's time to extinguish the chalice. If you know the words, say them with me. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again. Here's your question. If it was up to you, how would you respond to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine? Does that make you a pacifist, pragmatic pacifist, or warmonger? <laughs>